I'm Ryan McCaffrey from IGN. Welcome to another episode of IGN Unfiltered, our monthly interview series where we sit down with the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the games industry. This month, my guests, plural, are John Brooke and Lee Singleton, the co-heads of studio at Square Enix External Studios. They are heading up the Outriders new release, new IP this fall coming to the new consoles, the current ones, and PC as well. we got a lot to talk to them about. Let's take a listen. Where I wanted to start with you guys is just the sort of this notion of, I mean, Square Enix external studios is kind of a big thing. So what, like, what does that mean? Like, what does an average day look like for each of you? I could start with John. It's an average day. That's a good starting point. But I mean, like, as you say, we, we work on a number of games with a number of great partners uh, and every day is unique. So we're just trying to help make great games with these great developers. Um, Lee and I sort of share the studio roles in, in two different ways. So I, I'm largely responsible for the brand and the sort of PR and the, the community side of, of, our, of our studio. And, and Lee's responsible for, for the development and the production piece. So, I mean, do you want us to talk a little bit more about what we do? I mean, um, obviously, you know, it starts by trying to find some great games. Yeah, you know, that's, that's, <laughs> that's an interesting starting point. You know, we, we, have, we have a long running relationship with a lot of great developers. We meet them regularly and we let's discuss what 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 they have and what what we can do together so we have that kind of speculative meeting and discussion quite regularly and then we have long-running partners that we work with for many years you know people right. like you know avalanche studios and, and don't know that you're you you'll heard about um deck nine games and then more recently people can fly so when we're working with studios we'd like to work with them for you know as long as we can and we have franchises that we try to build out with them uh, and that's that's where the sort of partnership piece comes in so you know you know, if we're not looking for new games, we're just trying to make the games that we're, you know, we're currently working on as, as great as they can be. And that's a long process today. You know, that might be yeah. four years, you know, and, and then even longer with post release content. So, you know, first and foremost, you know, you, you need to really get on well with the people you work with. And then as you go through each stage of development, there's just new challenges to overcome together. And there's, and there's um, sort of new pieces of work each time. Yeah, I, I mean, I think just to sort of chip in on that, you know, I'd say we're we're quite a small sort of boutique studio, really, that sort of sits in a square family. But yeah. we obviously specialise working with independent developers. So, you know, we don't do a lot of games, but everyone we do is really important to the group. Um, and we've got a really strong team around myself and John of industry vets. So yeah, even on the, on the dev side, the average level of experience is over 20 years per person. So, you know, we get constantly excited about new ideas talent passion you know we i guess you can't teach passion right so we really look for that when we're partnering with studios and for example when we had that first meeting john you're a member with the people who can fly guys we we're asking them why do you want to build this game and they're like well it's the game i've always wanted to play that no one's ever made you know so you know they're really passionate about that and that really resonates with us because you know we're investing in sort of people and ideas at the end of the day so what what got you guys into the games industry? Because you both you've both been at this for quite some time. Lee, I'll, I'll stick with you and start with you on that. Yeah, um, I, I was at college actually, um, trying to get a bit of paper that said I knew how to use a computer, and uh, I saw this little little job on the notice board to uh, go and work for this games company. And of course, I've always played video games, and I was I was only eighteen, and I was like, crikey, yeah, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll go up there and see what it's all about. And uh, I went along with the rest of the entire college and um, had an interview with this tall bloke called Phil Harrison. And uh, he gave me a job. And uh, that was that, really. That was in 1990, so that's 30 years yeah. ago. 
So that, that's how I started. Um, you know, I was at Mindscape for 10 years. And, you know, the team was really small, but we got to work on really exciting stuff back in the time. I don't know if you remember all the Amiga stuff, Atari ST stuff, early PC stuff. We used to work with Origin at the time. So we, we did all the Ultima stuff, Wing Commander, all that stuff. We worked with the Bitmap Brothers, you know, doing Chaos Engine and Speedball and things like that. We worked with Sensible Software, doing Sensible Soccer, which you know, might not have been big in America, but it's huge in Europe. Um, yeah, it's really exciting times, and it's where I sort of started to learn my craft, really. And you know, I, was, I stuck it out for 10 years there, and then jumped over to SCI, which is a small sort of boutique London publisher, really. Yeah, they and, published uh, Carmageddon, if I remember right. That's right. Yeah, that's the one. That was slightly before my time. But um, yeah, I joined and uh, worked on the Conflict series of games, so starting with Conflict Desert Storm, which was actually a really big hit for you know, the small publisher. We had a UK number one. Um, number one in a few other territories as well. And um, that did really well. And then um, SCI, it was a bit of a David and Goliath story, really. They brought IDOS and, uh, you know, the two teams sort of merged together. And uh, I think that was uh, 2005. Um, yeah, and then, uh, yeah, IDOS, yeah, it was a d different beast altogether, really, because they had these sort of established internal studios with Crystal Dynamics and IO at the time. And we started a new studio you know, in Montreal. With IDOS, so it was um, that was really exciting getting to work on you know Tomb Raiders and Hitman's and things like that. And um, I guess the sort of studio we are today really sort of took shape sort of back in sort of probably ten years ago now, really, um, where we decided to sort of square become more of a studio-led business. So each of the studios was sort of siloed and had their own sort of bit more sort of focus and direction and accountability ultimately. And that's when we sort of started working with you know some really exciting partners like rocksteady on you know batman and all the rest of it all the jc's and sleeping dogs and all the stuff you see now john how about you what's your what's your superhero origin story here how did how did you find yourself <laughs> in the games industry it's similarly as i care because leave i think i'm afraid but like i i i left university and applied for a job in a newspaper that's how far back it goes for a very small publisher who i hadn't even heard of at the time called interactive magic um, you know, and this is before PlayStation was even really around, it's PC days. So I worked on a, a Civilization clone called Destiny. So I can say my very first game that I worked on was Destiny. <laughs> obviously not the one that you know today. But like, you know, we were specializing in um, large-scale multiplayer gaming on dial-up. <laughs> so we had a game called Warbirds where we had like 64 biplanes fighting together in the sky, but on dial-up on PC. So you can imagine... <laughs> the lag and the... What, what could possibly <laughs> go wrong? <laughs> Not what could go wrong, exactly, yeah. So that was where things started out. Uh, that published, unfortunately, went bust. But I moved on to Virgin Interactive, and in Europe, they were working on all the Interplay games, all the Capcom games at the time, all the Hudson Soft games. So we had a really big portfolio, though, a really large publisher at the time, and stuff was doing marketing and PR for those guys. Stint at THQ, and then I joined IDOS in the time where, where you mentioned where SCI kind of brought them, and that merger happened. So, you know, that's where I first started working with Lee, really. We were working on, you know, games like Hitman and Tomb Raider and, and, and parts of that ilk. Um, yeah, and then, as, like I say, our, our past kind of crossed at that point. We've been working in this external studios group now for... How long is it now, Lee? I mean, we, we, we named it fairly recently. It was always called the London studio for a while, wasn't it? Yeah, it's about 10 years. And I think, yeah, the exciting thing, which you'll probably remember, John, is... Um... 
the thing we did different when we made that shift is we actually integrated brand and production and had those sort of brand managers and designers and producers sitting side by side. And it was really funny at the time because I can remember people going, oh, I can't wait to see what those brand people are doing, you know, and, um, <laughs> <laughs> and vice versa, right? And, you know, within a couple of weeks, yeah. there was so much respect for everyone, you know, it was because everybody could see what they did all day and uh, realise what a valuable cog they were in that whole machine, right? So it was, that's probably the best thing we've ever done. Yeah. Guys, I'm curious. Uh, Square Enix is a really interesting company to me in the amongst the major games publishers in the world in that there's this there's this really interesting uh, it's almost two halves of a company, almost two separate companies between East and, and the Western side of things as far as the, even the kinds of games they make. So is is there like a friendly internal rivalry between the Eastern and Western side of the businesses at all i mean obviously the east gets a lot of attention with final fantasy uh but but you know you guys do a, a, like a, a great variety of awesome stuff too so i'm kind of curious how how that is from the inside I, I think it's fair to say you know we're all on the same side you know um yeah. i wouldn't say there's any real rivalry at all because you know there's a lot of people in the business that get to work across all of those games you know whether it's a sales team or a qa team or you know, sort of lawyers or finance people, um, you know, there's there's a there's a huge amount of overlap there. Um, I mean, the unit that John and I run, you know, we don't really, you know, touch those games so much, but we do work very closely with some people in Japan. You know, we talk about, you know, collaborating and things like that all the time, and we help each other where we can. Um, but yeah, I'd say that, I wouldn't say there's any rivalry at all. I think it's yeah, as a business, it's probably one of the most supportive sort of businesses that I've ever worked for. I think you know they're always if we sort of sort of tap there's domain expertise there that we can tap into, for example, and we can right. sort of help get learnings from you know, things they've done that we haven't done, and it works both ways. You know, we're always helping those guys too, so it works well. Yeah, I'd also I'd kind of add that like I think. Um... One of the reasons why Square bought IDOS was to get some expertise in Western gaming. Sure. Um, and, and, you know, not, not every gamer is the same all around the world. So I think what's great about Square Enix is we, you know, we make, we try to make just great games for different groups of consumers. We don't, we don't just try to make one game for everyone, you know, it's not really the case. So, you know, it's, it's cool for us that there's, you know, in the Japan team making amazing games, you know, some of those amazing games over into the West, but huge games like Final Fantasy, but they also make quite a lot of games that are maybe primarily for the Japanese market. In the West, obviously, we're making games for the Western market primarily, but we'd, we'd love our hits to be, you know, played by Japanese gamers. That would be fantastic. And, um, you know, like Lee said, as, as a business, it's really supportive. It's really, you know, from the outside, it may look like two separate sides, but actually, internally, you know, it's, it's, it's quite opposite, actually. I think there's a lot of mutual respect between the two groups. And there's a real desire to have a, a sort of joined up company with, within Square Enix. Nice. That's great. Lee, I want to zero in with you for a second because uh, you founded Square Enix Montreal. And I'll tell you, th those developers are awesome. I've met a few of them over the years at various events. And I, I just, I am a major fan of their Go games, their mobile titles, Hitman Go, uh, of course, Lara Croft Go, Deus Ex Go. So I kind of want to ask about where those came from because I mean I'm 
I think of myself primarily as a as a console gamer, PC gamer, more of a like you know hardcore gamer. Uh, but but mobile games, mobile's a massive market. But I like I think a lot of core gamers, at least at least for me, I don't really pay attention to mobile games. But the Go games to me felt like a really awesome bridging of the gap between those two markets. So I'm kind of curious where those came from and and how you guys managed to successfully really fuse those two those two uh, disciplines, as, as it were. Yeah, I mean, we set up the studio to become the sort of Western center of domain expertise for mobile gaming for Square. I mean, they had a really big sort of footprint in the sort of domestic Japanese market and they were finding a lot of success there. So, you know, they saw it as an opportunity for, you know, the Western business to have something similar. So, you know, we set up the studio under that premise and, you know, we were trying to think about, you know, where, where do you start? You know, what sort of game do you come out with? And, you know, we were looking at all of the IP within the group and we thought, you know, Hitman was the perfect IP to sort of do something with and to, to jump across into that mobile space. So that's sort of where it started with that remit. And it's actually sort of the Dan, one of our designers, came up with the concept, actually. And um, it was really cool because it is sort of, you know, we had this sort of concept art piece. And it's sort of like a a diorama from an architect, if you will, you yeah. know, and, and and that sort of flowed through the game all, all the way, you know, it, it, it wasn't just, you know, just the concept piece, it kind of it stuck with the game and made it what it was, but, yeah, you've got, Hitman's a very clear, understandable world, I think, I mean, John's worked on it a lot as well, you know, you did a stint at IO in Copenhagen, didn't you, but, um, so yeah, it all started from that, really, and, you know, obviously, most of the people in the team have got had this sort of AAA gaming sort of pedigree background. So, you know, there's some of those sort of tropes and familiarity sort of carried through into that mobile title. Did, uh, now did, did those games do well? Because it's like they are done. I mean, are, are they coming back? I, I have to, I'm obliged to ask. Well, yeah, I'd have to let Patrick answer that question for you because he runs the Montreal studio now. But, yeah, they did pretty well. I mean, you know, they won various sort of Apple Design Innovation Awards and things like that, you know, best games. They won, they won a lot of awards, so yeah, critically, they did really well. I think, you know, paid for gaming on mobile is, is challenging. It's difficult. You know, you, you ask someone to pay for a game that's the same price as a cup of coffee, and then they're out. <laughs> you know, there's so much, you know, free-to-play is the dominant business model in that space now. So, you know, at the time, it wasn't as dominant. So, you know, we, we had success in that space. Um, but I think, you know, going forwards, it's, it's difficult for paid up games in the mobile space. So, guys, when when uh, when IO, speaking of Hitman, wanted to leave or when that sort of business divorce was happening, it seemed like Square handled it really gracefully. IO kept the Hitman IP. Can, can you sort of share a lot of any insight into into that process from from on from on the inside? Because I feel like a lot of big publishers would not have handled that divorce as it were so amicably yeah i mean they were part of the square Enix family you know i have been part of i lost for a good number of years and we, we, I, I used to work at i on the hitman brand there and you, you're right when when it came to the um, use the word divorce um which, which is a tough word it, it was more like we we felt they had more opportunity going themselves you know they, they, they could put their own passion into the project they could fund it themselves and and, and that just fit better with with, with where we, we were at the time i mean 
not so much more about that, obviously, than, than is already public, but it was amicable. And, uh, and I'm actually really pleased to see that they've gone from strength to strength, really. You know, like, it's great to see the game still, still doing well, and yeah. it's great to see what they've got up to now. So I'm really pleased with them. Because you say, it would have been a real shame just to sort of say, hey, you don't, you don't fit into our plans anymore. Now we'll make it really difficult for you to continue doing the work that people love. I think that would be the worst case scenario for us. So I'm pleased, I'm pleased with the way it went. Yeah, there's some really talented people there. And, yeah, the IP is amazing as well. You type Hitman into Google and everything's black and red. When uh, Another one, Just Cause. So that seems like one of those games to me. It's, it's been around a while. Just Cause feels to me like one of those kind of always right on the cusp franchises that's never quite broken through as a like mega industry topping blockbuster. What's what do you guys see? How, what's the future of Just Cause? Is you know it's it's such a physics based playground. Does does the new console generation coming up afford a a new opportunity for a franchise like that? I mean, the, the new consoles probably certainly make it easier. <laughs> um, you know, it's when you, you think of Just Cause, right? And it's synonymous with large scale destruction and massive open worlds and loads of physics, and it's all stuff that inherently has been really difficult to do in the past isn't it so um yeah that's part of the reason why i think jc3 was so successful really because you know it's the first time we introduced that wingsuit and large-scale destruction and you know we had a bit of a ethos on the game really if you poke it it should react so we had that huge great big sandbox i can remember watching youtube videos and there's people playing jenga with like shipping containers tethered off helicopters and Crazy stuff like that. So um, yeah, it worked. Really, it worked really well for us. Jc three. I think it did really well for the group. Yeah. Also, I think we, we use the word physicalized destruction, and I'm not sure how much people really understand about that. But you know, our destruction isn't pre-canned. You know, it, there's actually a big physics invention behind that, where you know we're calculating you know where things collide and what they hit onto other things and they spiral and move, and you can chain destruction as a result of that, which means the player is in control of the destruction. You know, it's not like if you blow up a building, it explodes in the same way every time. Like how you blow it up from one angle with one object, the explosion is unique. And that's really hard to do <laughs> in reality. You know, and it's, it's a big source of the fun. Like Lee said, like the, the game's a huge playground. It's a little sandbox. And I think in that sense, it's, it still remains quite unique in the open world space because open world games have become almost more choreographed to some extent. Like, yeah. you know, like you're going through a huge story as you always are in games, of course, but you know, you've been led from piece to piece with most games, lead up to big finale, but just cause it it was it was really hard to, to manage that because the player was really in control of what they did, they could go anywhere, do anything, you know, in mission design, like, you know, when you're thinking about whatever that goal was in that mission, we had to try to imagine how the player might turn up to that mission. You know, would they come in flying on the back of a stealth jet, you know, bail out of their wingsuit? drop loads of uh, grenades on it or would they be coming on foot in a car or, or what you know there's so many permutations to it um, but i think that's what made the game really fun it still makes it fun today and it still makes it really unique and um and it sells really well i mean like, loads of players find their way to just cause and i mean i think it might have been i can't remember with even an ign quote but like it was referred to once as the, sort of the chicken soup of gaming which i, I know is a really weird quote but I never, it never leaves my head because like the idea was when you're feeling a little down just boot up Just Cause and have a bit of fun. <laughs> that whole idea of like, yeah. you know, you eat chicken soup when you're feeling unwell, right? I mean, Just Cause is one of those games, I think, when 
you build it up. It's just there's always something unique going to happen, and it will be fun for you. You know, it doesn't get old. I can remember looking at the metrics on JC3 as well, where, um, you know, we, were, we hadn't been released that long. And there was a, just such a disproportionate amount of people that had spent over 500 hours in the game playing. Wow. And it's like, it, and they're still finding things to do. Yeah, it's one of those games that's so big. And, you know, we, it's almost like we see it internally where we're kind of building a playground and it's kind of up to you how you have the fun in it. You know, we're just giving you the tools for fun and we're not really prescribing exactly what you've got to do to have fun. That's down to you, down to the player. So off you go, you know. If you like tethering, you know, gas canisters to cows and setting them off, you know, go knock yourself out. <laughs> uh, now, Deus Ex, I know that's, that's not an external studio game, but is it is it frustrating when a series is that good, but clearly doesn't sell as well as it deserves to. I mean, that was sort of publicly stated over time. Like, yeah, it just didn't, it never quite, quite broke through because it's, it, it just feels like Deus Ex always deserved better. I think it's quite difficult it's to not- comment on, on, you know, the game from um, Eidos Montreal. But I mean, it's a great game, right? It's really high quality. And I think it served that audience really, really well. I mean, some things break out of those sort of, primary audiences and go really really wide some things some things don't i think you know from everything i understand about that game it's 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 done right i mean it's it's not a gta obviously but it's it's i think it's done well how about um how about life is strange that's actually a good one uh critical seemingly commercial hit for you guys how did where did that project come from because that's like i remember don nod had done remember me that's in right. the 360 PS3 era, uh, yeah. and then and then really like Life is Strange is completely different and has has really seemingly found a, a great audience and and really kept uh, modern episodic adventure gaming alive, particularly as as Telltale has unfortunately fallen off and I'm sure they've resurrected, but but really their Life is Strange has has really uh, found a, a a calling you know to, in the in the in the community. Yeah, there's a there's a funny story to that actually. I mean, I've known Oscar for a really long time, and you know they they pitched Remember Me to us, and you know we we didn't take it on. But um, you know when they sort of came to the end of that, I had a meeting with Oscar. He came over from France to London, and um, he was sort of pitching some new titles to us, and and I think it was really resonating with us. We were like, yeah, you know, it's quite nice, but it doesn't feel like a good fit for the portfolio. Yeah, you got anything else? And he's like. No, oh, actually, we've got this one thing, and it punted it around to quite a lot of places, actually, showing quite a few people, and no one was interested in it. And there's this really, really sort of quite crude, very early sort of prototype of Life is Strange. And we instantly fell in love with it. You know, we saw it as something new, something different, something people had never tried before. And we just felt that it was going to be an important game, you know, for the, for the industry as such, you know, because... It was just doing these things that no one had done before. And yeah, we pretty much signed it on the spot. We went to Paris to see the game and uh, just look a bit more deeply at the game. And I remember that first time, that's the first time I'd seen it because I didn't see that pitch that Lee saw. And then there's a few of us, three or four of us went over to Paris and we sat in a meeting with Don't Nod and then Michelle and I all in mind. They pitched the game to us and showed it to us. And this playthrough was amazing. Like it was starting to version of the game. And uh, the version of the puzzle with the, um, the fridge where the pizza box falls off and you catch the key. But like this music played throughout the whole game, this lovely kind of indie music. 
it was a really emotional kind of scene. And at the end of the, the end of the demo, I remember like looking around and like it was really people were quite emotional from the from the presentation. Like you know, just feeling the vibe of the game, feeling the music, seeing this content. And and you know, there's a lot of lot of you know a lot of people in that room that like were clearly touched by this game. And and I haven't been in a presentation before where you could sense the emotion in the room quite so much. I think that really leans in on what Lee said. It was quite a significant game. You could see that like. Typically games, I think what's, what we all love about games probably is killing things and blowing things up and saving the world. We've probably done that <laughs> a thousand times over in video games and we love it, right? <laughs> we'll always be doing that. But actually, oh, yeah. video games, as video games grow and mature, and I think there's still a long way to go, I think, you know, we're an entertainment medium. And entertainment mediums elsewhere cover a lot more topics. There's a lot more ways to entertain people, killing people and blowing up things and saving the world, right? And I think that's where Life is Strange sort, sort of goes the way a little bit, right? It kind of suggests that you can tell great stories, you can have real emotion in games that I don't think we've always realised we can do. You know, we're, we're probably, if we're, I love this industry, we'll be there a long time. You know, that if there's one thing that's maybe failing in it is that we maybe are one genre, <laughs> the genre of action. You know, we do that continually. And, um, you know, interactive storytelling, I think will continue to grow in gaming because people want to be immersed into worlds, right? They want to they feel different emotions, you know, I think that's what Life Strange does for me, at least. Yeah, there aren't many, many games where make the hair stand up on the back of your neck or give you some kind of physical reaction, right? You know, the amount of fan mail we get for that game is probably surpasses everything else we do. You know, we, we see pictures of people crying when they're playing with it. You know, it's um, it's really touching when we get that stuff as well. It's, um, yeah, we, yeah, yeah, I, I've, had guys, I've had guys come to me and say, I've played games for ages and I've sucked myself and played games and my wife, or my girlfriend or whatever has walked past and never really engaged. And then somebody they've walked past two or three times and then they've sat down and then they sat down and they've, and they've taken the pad and then they're playing. And Life is Strange has been one of those almost gateway games for some people. To yeah, play. absolutely. Yeah, involve, you know, loved ones and people that don't normally play games with them. And I think that's, there's been some amazing stories like that, real stories from real people. It's great. You know, and then on the, on the flip side, they're, they're heartwarming stories. You get stories of people have suffered some of the things that are in Life is Strange. You know, there's a lot of tough subjects broached there, you know, like, you know, there's a big, you know, topic of racism in, in, in Life is Strange 2, but we have, like, teenage suicide in Life is Strange 1, you know, and a, and a whole other things in between. But, like, you know, when games touch on stories that people can really relate to as well, I think that's really And, again, we see that within our community quite regularly. Well, one of those, one of the action games, the 4,000 action games, <laughs> we still love them, is Sleeping Dogs. Uh, now, that yeah. one's interesting to me because you guys picked that one up after another publisher dropped it and you kind of reshaped it into what it is now. So did you, did you guys see that as a, as like right away, yes, we can make this a hit? And, and or do you stop and go, well, What's what's the catch? Because this other big publisher dropped it. So what what what's hiding under the cert? Like what's wrong here? Um, or did I'm just sort of curious how that how that yeah. thought process goes when you're when you're looking at uh, at what was then true crime and it became Sleeping Dogs. I think I think there are two sort of aspects to that really. I mean, firstly, you know, you've got obviously you've got the game and the output, but secondly, you, you've got the team behind it. And UFG were an exceptional team. You know, there was a core kind of bunch of, I think, about 20 devs that had all worked together for 15 years on various projects. So, 
you know, they, the left hand knew exactly what the right hand was doing at all times. You know, they knew who they could depend on, who they could count on for doing various things. They're a really talented team. So, you know, they, they were a great bunch. I mean, it's interesting, actually, because um, they used to be a part of Black Box. So they used to sort of work on franchises like Need for Speed and, and things like that, right? So, you know, when they came to sort of building that city, they built a massive racetrack that was really great fun to ride around and race around. And then they, then they dressed it up to make it look like Hong Kong. You know, whereas, you know, a, a lot of other devs would have sort of built this perfect model of Hong Kong, dropped cars in it, and hoped it was fun to race around, right? right. So, you know, they brought quite a lot of domain expertise to the project that you know, made it what it was. And you, know, you start feathering in all of those sort of nice environmental kills and things like that. And it was, um, it was really placed the game. They had a great, great animation system. Great combat design, which we knew a fair bit about as well, because we you know, come out the back of Batman and things like that. So, um, yeah, there's the two things: great team and the, the product had great potential. I mean, open world games are tough to make. But, you know, we've done a few of them, and you know, they, they had all the right ingredients to deliver another great game. And you know, with the collaboration, we managed to do that between us. John, is it is it rewarding? Is it really validating when? Ultimately, Sleeping Dogs does come out, and it's really well received. It's, yeah, I mean, like, I mean, we didn't really believe in that game. I remember seeing the, the presentation, and it looked great. So yeah, you are right. But your opening question was like, do you worry about why someone's dropped it? I mean, you have to look closely at that, but like, you also have to go on your instincts a little bit initially and say, you know, how am I reacting to this demo? Is there something there? And then, then look deeper to make sure. There's not any huge problems there, which I think, you know, which there, yeah, was, the, there wasn't in this instance. But I mean, the, you know, I think Activision are a different publisher to us, and I think like they have maybe worked on it a long time, and for whatever reason decided they they they, they didn't want to continue with it. But um, I think the key with all of that, John, it, it, you know, when we're looking at things like that, you know, with, with with one eye you're sort of looking at what's been done, but with the other eye you're sort of looking at like what's left to do, and what can it be, you know. So it is. You got to have both eyes wide open on that part of it, because um, you know when you've got a big team and a big open world game, that can run and run and run. And if you're not careful, games like that just never get finished. You know, so you've got to have a you know a really strong team and a really clear vision of you know where you need to land with something like that. Now, guys, you're not here for your help. You're you're here to we're promoting Outriders, which is out this holiday. Uh, that is the latest, biggest project that that your studios are working on, Extra Square Enix External Studios. So that game's clearly got a lot of potential. It's you got a talented studio. You guys are talking a lot about about looking at the people as much as the project itself. Yeah. People Can Fly has a good track record. It's hitting around a new console launch, uh, and it's also the kind of game that's very much in vogue right now. Sort of a lot of the core mechanics of it. So we don't obviously know if it's going to be a hit yet. But on paper, Outriders is looking real good. How much, how much of all that is of what I just said is planned versus just good luck and good timing as far as having sort of the right game at the right time? It's totally planned, you know, from the start. You know, we, we, we knew exactly what we're getting into, right? You know, we wanted to do something that was different and fresh, right? And, you know, smashing together some of those sort of favorite aspects of video games, it gave us a... A new, a new combination. I mean, obviously, four years ago, we didn't know where the market would be today. Right. But we, we knew there'd be customers that wanted to play games like this, you know, because we were all sitting around 
talking about it, getting really excited about it and wanting to play ourselves, right? And we play games. So, you know, that, that was a really strong intention, I think, and gave us a good, good read on where, where we are and what we wanted to do. John? Uh, I remember as well, I remember again, I always remember the, the first time you meet, you just do, but, you know, the team wanted to make basically Diablo with, with, with shooting. That was kind of their, their driving force. And I kind of thought, that just sounds really cool. You know, I think in between those four years, you know, obviously games have, other games have, have come that, 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 you know, in this genre, you know, but, but the, the team would never try and, they weren't really aware of all of the games, you know. I mean, like, people talk a lot about things like Anthem, a lot about Destiny. They weren't really games that we were necessarily even really looking at four years ago. Like, really, the, the sole thought and focus was if we bring some of that loot aspect of Diablo and that kind of, kind of want to play more experience, you know, and bring the great shooting that, that PCF have to bear, then this has something really special. Um, and the other thing I think we, we're all really focused on doing is just making great combat. I think as a studio, we've, we've always made great combat. I mean, you know, like Batman Ark Asylum was all built around combat. You know, that was, that was from, from this team here. You know, Sleeping Dogs has great combat in it. And I think when we looked at Outriders and we looked at PCF's ability to make great shooting, and we heard their ideas and their plans around the powers, we just thought that's just going to be really good, going to feel really good to play because we did the hands-on games so much faster and more aggressive. You know, you don't heal in cover. Like that, that whole idea of shooting guns, running away, hiding, replaying health, coming back out again. We don't have that at all. Like we, we have, you get health from killing enemies. You know, you know, like engaging in what you're there to do, you'll, you'll, you'll get extra health. And powers aren't there to do once a level. Powers are there to use all the time. Like, you know, why have a really awesome, ferocious, deadly power move if you're going to use it now and again? Like, you know, what we want to do is make the player feel like they are like a titan on the battlefield, able to like, you know, kill at will. And, uh, and I think that feeling is is something that is great. And we were, you know, like say we had this, we had these plans four years ago. It's a long journey making games. Uh, you know, and PCF has yeah. grown a long, a long way with that. And it's just really exciting for us to be close to release and having all those elements in play and feeling really good about what we've made. So I'm really excited for what, what we produce. I can't wait for you to play it. So I'm curious, you know, because I've talked about like uh, with Life is Strange, other publishers looked at it, nobody, everybody kind of passed on it until you guys came around. With Outriders, did you have to bid against other publishers for that, or or does People Can Fly come come to you guys first? Uh, I'm sort of curious of the the backstory there. I think Seb from PCF actually pinged you on LinkedIn or something, wasn't it, for a meeting at Gamescom, John? Was it? Was that the initial sort of contact? So after Gamescom, yeah, we just contacted on on LinkedIn, and you know, he just they just split from Epic Games, and uh, I thought this is interesting. I wonder what they're up to, <laughs> you know, and they. Obviously, had that concept, you know, when we when we connected them, we went to see them. You know, that's when we learned that they kind of had this game that they wanted to make for some time. You know, whilst they were within Epic, they were loved, they loved being there. They're obviously working on Unreal. They're working on Fortnite at the time. You know, and they were they were obviously well valued by Epic, but they really wanted to get back out into the wild again and make a game. And you know, like Lee, like Lee said a few times in in this in this chat, like when you meet people, you're you know, you're imagining that relationship and you're, you, want to, you want to work with great people and you want to believe in what they want to make because you're going to spend four or five years of your life with them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when, exactly. you hear, when you hear someone's prepared to do, you know, buy out from Epic, you know, a company like Epic, 
where you know they could have stayed there for a long time. They probably could have got rich there and been happy there. <laughs> you know, they want to buy themselves out and really put themselves into the market again with a new IP. For me, that kind of piqued my interest at least because you know that's a, a project of passion and 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 they believe in it. Yeah, and yeah, I guess it's fair to say that that game has evolved a fair bit over time. You know, mm. it didn't start exactly like that. You know, and, and games really do, right? Especially new IP, and we've we've got a pretty good track record of pushing out new IP as well. We're not scared of it. You know, we, we know what to do with it. And yeah, it's changed uh, a lot, I think. <laughs> but, you know, where it lands today, as John said, on the sticks, when you get hold of it, it's, um, it's really strong. It plays really, really well. And yeah, people certainly won't be disappointed with it. And I'd say, you know, single player and multiplayer are both really strong because obviously there's a co-op co-op element. And when you're playing with your friends and you're combining the skills and the powers of all the, you know, these different guys, it's, it's really quite something. Well, I guess I want to end with you guys with this, and that's I'll, I'll give I want to give you a chance to kind of pitch directly to to people that because you know it does seem like new IP. It, there is a little bit of an extra challenge there of getting awareness for it and getting people to actually try it. You know, the, the franchises, they know, they love, they're familiar, but what is sort of the elevator pitch version of Outriders as, as we're heading into this new console generation for, for people to actually sit down and try it? Uh, I, will, I will leave you to uh, make, a, make that final pitch to get people to try this new IP. Over to marketing. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, who's gonna, go, who's gonna go first? Maybe we'll do one each. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, mean, I guess it's also it's worth it's saying. Oh, go on. Go on I, I was just going to say, you know, what, one thing we've found, um, especially now, people are quite price sensitive to content, right? And Outride is a massive game, you know, and yeah, a lot of people don't really want to shell out sixty bucks for something that's eight hours long or something, do they? You know, I reckon we got, you know, like thirty-five, forty hours of fun in this, John, something like that. You know, it's, it's, it's a big, big cool story, but, but about 35 hours of this core story, and then you know, you can roll another character, you can play, you know, yeah, go around again. yeah. I mean, and, and and I think, like, on elevator pitch, you know, if you want a real fast paced um shooter with, with lots of powers, a big story, a deep game, great lore, great universe, one you can play on your own or play with your friends, you know, that's outriders, and like, don't be afraid of new IP. I think you're right, like. Gamers, I, I hear a lot. You know, we, we follow we follow other games. We begin there. You see it. People are really kind of upset with the frequency of sequels. Oh, it's this game number seven, or it's whatever, whatever. Right? It's always that, right? But people love what they love, and they and they they they, they know that they get a certain other qualities. So that's probably why they buy them. Because as you say, like games cost a lot of money, right? So we respect that. So what we what we're really hard to do with Outriders is make sure that we're delivering a game. You, you've not had this, had this experience before. Once you play this game, like I say, it's really hard to go back to playing other shooters. Um, and it offers real value. It's really deep, huge game there, and uh, and it, and it's fresh. Try it. There's a lot. There's a lot of depth for the customization as well, and the, the player journey, isn't there? So, yeah, people will love it. I'm sure. Thank you, John. Thank you, Lee. Be sure to join us next month for another episode of IGN Unfiltered, where I will get to sit down with another wonderful person from somewhere in the games industry. There are always great developer stories to tell right here on IGN Unfiltered.